This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adult spinal deformity from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Adult spinal deformity is an idiopathic or degenerative condition of the adult spine leading to a deformity in the coronal or sagittal plane. Diagnosis is made with full-length spine radiographs. Treatment is a trial of non-operative management with NSAIDs and physical therapy. Surgical deformity correction is indicated for progressive disabling pain that has failed non-operative management and or progressive neurological deficits. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the demographics of adult spine deformity, the mean age is 60 years old, and know that males and females are equally affected. In terms of anatomic location, idiopathic scoliosis is more common in the thoracic spine, while degenerative scoliosis occurs more commonly in the lumbar spine. Moving on to the etiology of adult spinal deformity, there are two types. There's a coronal plane imbalance and a sagittal plane imbalance. Coronal plane imbalance is defined as lateral deviation of the normal vertical line of the spine greater than 10 degrees, while a sagittal plane imbalance is defined as radiographic sagittal imbalance of greater than 5 centimeters. In terms of the pathoanatomy of adult spinal deformity, degenerative scoliosis results from the asymmetric degeneration of the disc space and or facet joints in the spine. This may occur in the coronal plane and is known as scoliosis, or the sagittal plane, which is known as kyphosis slash lordosis. Factors contributing to loss of sagittal plane balance includes osteoporosis, pre-existing scoliosis, iatrogenic instability, and or degenerative disc disease. Now, let's talk about the classification of adult spinal deformity. Know that coronal deformity can be broken down into idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity and degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity. Idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity is the result of untreated adolescent idiopathic scoliosis in the adult while degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity is defined as progressive deformity in the adult caused by degenerative changes, iatrogenic reasons, or paralysis. Now let's talk about the differences between idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity and degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity. So with respect to curve pattern, idiopathic or residual adult spinal deformity follows a classic curve pattern, while degenerative or de novo adult spinal deformity lacks classic curve patterns. With respect to vertebral segments, idiopathic adult spinal deformity involves more vertebral segments, while degenerative adult spinal deformity involves fewer vertebral segments. In terms of curve location, idiopathic adult spinal deformity occurs in the thoracic spine, while degenerative adult spinal deformity occurs in the lumbar spine. With respect to curve magnitude, idiopathic adult spinal deformity has larger curves, while degenerative adult spinal deformity has smaller curve magnitude. Now, let's talk about the presentation of adult spinal deformity. In terms of symptoms, patients may have low back pain in 40 to 90% of cases, neurogenic claudication, or radicular pain and weakness. The most common symptom is low back pain, and this is caused by spondylosis, micro-slash-macro instability, and discogenic pain. This low back pain is more severe and recurrent than the general population. Neurogenic claudication will manifest as pain in the lower extremities and buttocks. Unlike classic claudication, patients with scoliosis plus stenosis do not obtain relief with sitting slash forward flexion. With neurogenic claudication caused by spinal stenosis, note that the stenosis is located on the concave side of the curve. Finally, in terms of radicular leg pain and weakness, this is caused by foraminal and lateral recess stenosis. It is worse in the concavity of the deformity where there is vertebral body rotation and translation. 
In terms of the physical exam in the setting of adult spinal deformity, there may be a deformity with thoracic prominence seen with forward bending. Physical exam may also reveal muscle weakness. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a full-length long 36-inch cassette standing scoliosis x-ray in the coronal plane, this is the AP radiograph, and in the sagittal plane, which is a lateral radiograph, with right and left bending films. Bending films help assess curve flexibility and the possibility of correction with surgical intervention. Measurements on the AP radiograph include the Cobb angle and coronal balance, and the coronal balance measurement is made using a C7 plumb line and the center sacral vertical line. On the lateral radiograph, sagittal balance is measured using a C7 plumb line. Pelvic incidence is calculated as the sum of the sacral slope plus the pelvic tilt. That is, pelvic incidence equals sacral slope plus pelvic tilt. A CT scan will help identify bony deformity such as facet arthrosis. A CT myelogram is most useful for assessing stenosis and bony anatomy as rotation makes interpretation of the MRI difficult. CT myelogram will have a better appreciation of the bony anatomy and rotational deformity than MRI. An MRI is indicated when lower extremity pain is present and can identify central canal stenosis, facet hypertrophy, particular enlargement, foraminal encroachment, and disc degeneration. Finally, a DEXA scan is important to determine bone density for surgical planning. Moving on to treatment of adult spinal deformity, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative options include observation with non-operative modalities. This is indicated for coronal curves less than 30 degrees as these rarely progress. Non-operative modalities include oral medications like NSAIDs and tricyclic antidepressants that can help with sleep disturbance, physical therapy which includes core strengthening, specifically walking, cycling, swimming, and selected weightlifting. Note that corticosteroid injections and nerve root blocks can be diagnostic and therapeutic, and finally, bracing may slow the progression and increase comfort. Operative options include surgical curve correction with instrumented fusion. This is indicated in the setting of a curve greater than 50 degrees of the following type. Sagittal imbalance, curve progression, intractable back pain or radicular pain that has failed non-surgical efforts, cosmesis, which is controversial, and in the setting of cardiopulmonary decline, specifically when there are thoracic curves greater than 60 degrees, which affect pulmonary function tests, and thoracic curves greater than 90 degrees, which affect mortality. As far as the technique for surgical curve correction with instrumented fusion, the ones to know include posterior-only curve correction and instrumented fusion, and a combined anterior-posterior curve correction with instrumented fusion. So posterior-only curve correction and instrumented fusion is indicated when the thoracic curves are greater than 50 degrees and most double structural curves are greater than 50 degrees. Note that selecting the technique is patient and surgeon-specific. As far as combined anterior-slash-posterior curve correction with instrumented fusion, indications include isolated thoracolumbar curves, isolated lumbar curves, and extremely rigid curves requiring an anterior release. Now let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. So in general, the goals of surgery is to restore spinal balance, relieve pain, and obtain a solid fusion. In terms of restoring spinal balance, note that the sagittal plane balance is the most reliable predictor of clinical symptoms postoperatively. This can be measured by the C7 plumb line, that is the C7 sagittal vertical axis, and remember that the correction of the sagittal plane deformity requires intense preoperative planning. Remember that you must correct the lumbar lordosis to normal anatomic range. That is, the pelvic incidence equals lumbar lordosis plus or minus 9 degrees, and know that a lumbar lordosis of less than or equal to 45 degrees minus thoracic kyphosis minus pelvic incidence, and this is the most predictive of sagittal plane correction maintenance.
know that worse outcomes are associated with baseline depression and obesity. As far as selecting proximal and distal fusion levels, with a proximal extension you will extend to a neutral and horizontal vertebra above the main curve. Extending the fusion to L5 is only indicated if there is no pathology at L5-S1. Patients with a normal C7 plumb line and normal sacral inclination have the lowest risk of future L5-S1 disc degeneration. In terms of outcomes, know that there is a high failure rate if instrumentation does not extend to the sacrum if there is pathology at L5-S1. As far as extending the fusion to the sacrum or S1, this is indicated if there is any pathology at L5-S1 including L5-S1 spondylolisthesis, L5-S1 spondylolysis, L5-S1 facet arthrosis, and prior laminectomy. As far as the technique, this may require concomitant anterior release and anterior column support through an anterior approach for better deformity correction. As far as outcomes, the advantages of extending the fusion to the sacrum is increased stability of a long fusion construct, and these constructs are less likely to fail if the instrumentation extends to the sacrum. Disadvantages includes increased risk of pseudoarthrosis, increased surgical time, increased reoperation rate, increased risk of sacral insufficiency fractures, and altered gait postoperatively. As far as extending the fusion to the ilium, otherwise known as a sacropelvic fusion, this should be considered if the sacrum is included in the fusion involving greater than three levels. The technique involves using iliac screws or bolts, and as far as outcomes, the advantage of extending the fusion to the ilium is increased stability of a long fusion construct and increased success of lumbosacral fusion. The disadvantage is prominent hardware. Cement augmentation is indicated in osteoporotic patients. The technique will involve a cement injection through a fenestrated tap at the end of the vertebra, followed by pedicle screw insertion. Outcomes include increased fusion rates, decreased deformity correction loss, increased screw pullout strength, and no added complications. Now let's talk about osteotomies. As a quick overview, osteotomies are useful to regain sagittal balance in severe angulation deformities. A correction of 30 degrees or more can be obtained through a Smith-Peterson or pedicle subtraction osteotomy. Intraoperative neuromonitoring is preferred. Smith-Peterson osteotomy is indicated for mild to moderate sagittal imbalance and deformities requiring correction of up to 10 degrees per level of osteotomy. Prerequisites for a Smith-Peterson osteotomy includes no anterior fusion at the level of osteotomy and know that adequate correction requires adequate disc height and mobility. This is because correction is at the level of the disc. Know that you will have more correction in the lumbar spine as there is greater disc height and mobility and less correction in the thoracic spine as there is lesser disc height and mobility. Moving on to a pedicle subtraction osteotomy, this is indicated in the setting of severe sagittal imbalance of greater than 12 centimeters. It's also indicated for deformities requiring correction of 30 to 35 degrees in the lumbar spine and 25 degrees in the thoracic spine. It's also indicated where anterior fusion is present and the correction is at the level of the vertebral body and not at the disc. Finally, moving on to vertebral column resection, this is indicated when there's severe sagittal imbalance as it provides more correction than pedicle subtraction osteotomy. This option is also indicated for deformities requiring correction of up to 45 degrees. It's indicated for rigid angular thoracic spine kyphosis, such as those associated with tumor, fracture, or infection, severe rigid scoliosis, congenital kyphosis, and hemivertebrae resection in the thoracic slash lumbar spines. Now, let's briefly go over anterior procedures, which are indicated for large curves greater than 70 degrees, rigid curves that have no flexibility on the side bending films, isolated lumbar or thoracolumbar curves, and anterior intrabody fusion at L5-S1 when fusing to the sacrum. 
As far as the technique, know that anterior release and fusion are usually combined with posterior instrumentation and fusion. Know that this can be staged or same day. In terms of outcomes of anterior procedures, disadvantages include longer surgeries if performed on the same day, higher complication rates, and they are more medically stressful. The advantages, however, are that they increase stability of L5-S1 long fusion constructs and help restore and maintain sagittal and coronal balance. Now, let's talk about some surgical complications. Overall, the complication rate is approximately 13.5%. There are 10% major complications, which often irreversibly affect the long-term health of the patient. The complication rate is significantly higher when osteotomies, revision procedures, and combined anterior-slash-posterior approaches are carried out. Finally, venous thromboembolism is most likely to result in a poor clinical outcome following adult spinal deformity surgery. Pseudoarthrosis has an incidence of approximately 5 to 25%. Note that the most common surgical technique resulting in pseudoarthrosis is posterior-only fusion, and this happens in 15% of cases. The most common locations for pseudoarthrosis include L5-S1 and the thoracolumbar junction. Risks include age greater than 55, kyphosis greater than 20 degrees, positive sagittal balance of greater than 5 centimeters, hip arthritis, smoking, a thoracoabdominal approach, and incomplete lumbopelvic fixation. A dural tear occurs in approximately 2.9% of patients. Another potential complication is infection, specifically deep wound infections, which can be seen in approximately 1.5% of patients, superficial wound infection, which can be seen in approximately 0.9% of patients, and know that there's an increased risk with diabetes, smoking, increasing age, and revision surgery. Implant complications take place in approximately 1.6% of patients. Know that instrumentation failure is more likely in bone with the lowest ratio of cortical to cancellous bone, for example, the sacrum. Another potential complication is neurologic deficits. Acute neurologic deficits can take place in approximately 1% of cases. This can occur intraoperatively after the deformity correction maneuver. If identified on neurophysiologic monitoring, you should remove the instrumentation and consider a wake-up test. Delayed neurological deficits are seen in approximately 0.5% of cases. Finally, acute neurological deficits following a pedicle subtraction osteotomy is seen in 18% of patients, and this can happen specifically with a nerve root injury, screw malposition, or from the corrective maneuver. Other potential complications include epidural hematoma, which can be seen in approximately 0.2% of cases, pulmonary embolus, which can also be seen in approximately 0.2% of cases, deep venous thrombosis, also in approximately 0.2% of patients, and finally deaths, which can be seen in approximately 0.3% of cases. Now, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of adult spinal deformity. Note that there is a worse prognosis if the symptoms progress to the side of the curve convexity. There is also a worse prognosis with sagittal plane imbalance. Know that sagittal plane balance is the most reliable predictor of clinical symptoms in adults with spinal deformity. As far as curve progression, know that progression depends on the curve type. So thoracic curves progress the most, then lumbar, then thoracolumbar, and then double major curves. Right thoracic curves progress 1 degree per year, while right lumbar curves progress 0.5 degrees per year, and thoracolumbar curves progress 0.25 degrees per year. Curve progression depends on curve magnitude. So curves less than 30 degrees rarely progress, and curves greater than 50 degrees commonly progress. Finally, let's talk about some additional risk factors for progression. Know that progression risk is increased when the intercrestal line is below L4-L5. Another additional risk factor is when pre-existing rotational changes exist. 
Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 66-year-old female presents to your clinic complaining of back pain, difficulty standing up straight, weakness in her legs, and neurogenic claudication. On upright thoracolumbar radiographs, there is a 75-degree thoracolumbar curve with the apex at L2, and the C7 plumb line falls 12 centimeters anterior to the posterior superior corner of S1. Aside from a decompression of the stenotic levels, which of the following choices will lead to the most reliable decrease in overall disability? And the choices are 1. Ensuring the lumbar lordosis is within 15 degrees of the pelvic incidence. 2. Decreasing the Cobb angle to less than 25 degrees. 3. Correcting the sagittal vertical axis to plus 3 centimeters from neutral. 4. Increasing the pelvic tilt to greater than 20 degrees and five, stopping the fusion at L5. The correct answer to this question is three, correcting the sagittal vertical axis to plus three centimeters from neutral. So this patient has a spinal deformity in both the coronal and sagittal planes. Among the options given, correction of the sagittal vertical axis to plus three centimeters is the most reliable predictor of clinical improvement. To quickly review, spinal malalignment in adult spinal deformity challenges balance mechanisms used for maintenance of an upright posture to achieve the basic human needs of preserving level visual gaze and retaining the head over the pelvis. Severe malalignment can result in greater muscular effort and energy expenditure to maintain the erect posture as well as use of compensatory mechanisms. As such, surgical correction of these deformities are aimed at achieving proper spinal pelvic alignment. Glassman et al. performed a multi-center retrospective study of 298 adults with spinal deformity. Regardless of operative care, which was seen in 129 patients, or non-operative care, seen in 172 patients, a positive sagittal balance was found to be the most reliable predictor of clinical symptoms in both patient groups. Schwab et al. published a current concepts review on operative management for adult spinal deformities and identified three major goals of surgery. 1. Correct the sagittal vertical axis to within 5 centimeters of neutral. 2. Ensure the pelvic tilt is less than 20 degrees. And 3. Ensure the lumbar lordosis is within 9 degrees of the pelvic incidence. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1. Ensuring the lumbar lordosis is within 15 degrees of the pelvic incidence is incorrect as ensuring that the lumbar lordosis is within 9 degrees of the pelvic incidence has been shown to be a reliable predictor of clinical outcome. Answer 2, decreasing the Cobb angle to less than 25 degrees is incorrect, as the amount of coronal correction has not been shown to reliably affect outcomes in adult spinal deformity patients. Answer 4, increasing the pelvic tilt to greater than 20 degrees is incorrect, as ensuring the pelvic tilt is less, not greater than 20 degrees, has been shown to be a reliable predictor of clinical symptoms. And finally, answer 5, stopping the fusion at L5 is incorrect, as stopping a large thoracolumbar fusion at L5 has not been shown to decrease disability in adult deformity patients. Extending the fusion to the sacrum can improve correction and maintenance of sagittal balance. And moving on to the final question, in adult patients with scoliosis, severity of symptoms correlates with which of the following variables? And the choices are 1, coronal imbalance, 2, sagittal imbalance, 3. Magnitude of the coronal Cobb angle. 4. Number of spinal levels involved in the deformity. And 5. Level of the apex of the curve. The correct answer to this question is 2. Sagittal imbalance. 
So sagittal imbalance is the most reliable radiographic predictor of clinical health status in adults with spinal deformity. Glassman et al. evaluated 752 patients of which a positive sagittal imbalance was identified in 352 patients. As the C7 plumb line deviation increased, poorer results were found in all measures of health status. In addition, patients in this study with lumbar kyphosis had more overall measured disability compared to controls. Schwab et al., as a method of classifying adult scoliosis, defined criteria based on radiographic markers of disability, which ultimately showed correlation with patient-reported disability and need for operative treatment. Kim et al. analyzed the causes, prevalence, and risk factors for sagittal thoracic decompression in patients post-lumbar spinal instrumentation and found that post-operative sagittal imbalance, smaller lumbar lordosis, preoperative sagittal imbalance, and age at surgery of greater than 55 years old were risk factors for thoracic decompensation. That's all for this review about adult spinal deformity. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.